1: And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you
0: Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 212, Pleasure and Liberty. Let me just remind you all that I am a proud member of the Agora Podcast Network. To find out more, please go to the agorapodcastnetwork.com website and find out more about the delicious smorgasbord of podcasts available. Now then, in June 1509, as Henry's nobility gathered in London for their new king's coronation, Henry called his very first Great Council. Just a very quick recap of what the Great Council was and its role. The Great Council is essentially the same as the magnum concilium that's been a feature of the English kingdom since the days of Billy the Conch, and indeed, you might argue since the days of the Anglo-Saxon kings and their witan, the wise men. It's not an official organ of state such as we might recognise today with a secretariat and terms of reference and all that sort of thing. It's simply the king and his great men gathering together for a wag of the collective chin. The king fulfilling his responsibility to consult before going off and doing pretty much exactly what he pleased. You might remember that the peerage by this stage is pretty much restricted to 60 families, 60, a tiny, tiny percentage of the population of England, somewhere around two to two and a half million. You might note that the wider group of what you might call the gentlemen of England was itself only about 2,000 households. So that's knights, and people not formally knighted but behaving as though they could be, or, frankly, just people who look and sounded like gentlemen with a coat of arms. I tell you this to remind you of just how lucky you are to be living in 2017. No, I tell you this to remind you that we're talking about a really small group of people here, of interbred families who knew each other pretty well and all their lineages. By the way, while we're on it, Andy asked me a question about the nomenclature of the peerage, which I really couldn't answer, but which prompted me to say something to help clarify. All the peerage were barons. Please note that the nobility in this context does not include the two thousand, the knights and the gentlemen. We're talking just the top 60 families here. So all these peers could be addressed as lord. But you'll notice that since the conquest you could be earl of pretty much anywhere. It's not like the alderman of the Anglo-Saxon state, which was a territorially based office. So, if you were alderman of Berkshire, for example, that was the extent of your authority, and that was probably where you lived. The Earl of Warwick's main estates came from the Earl of Salisbury, for example. Salisbury is in the south of England. The Earl of Salisbury's estates were mainly in the north of England. So, see what I mean? Billy the Conk, when he first arrived parceled out England to his companion robbers and dispoilers, and he made sure that he gave them land all over the place in little bits. So he might make me Baron Crowther and give me a bunch of land in little bits all over the place. Then if he made me an earl I'd go away and pick a name I fancied. The name wouldn't mean that that was where all my land was but it's likely there had been some connection so maybe the founder of the peerage had their main castle there or something like that. The point I then wanted to mention is that the peerage acquire multiple titles, which leads to massive confusion. So, Warwick the Kingmaker was a good example. His father was the Earl of Salisbury. But Warwick then acquired his title through marriage to Anne Beecham, who was the only remaining Warwick descendant. No blokes left. Then, Warwick's dad, the Earl of Salisbury, died. So then, the Earl of Warwick was also Earl of Salisbury. The reason I mention this is nomenclature and trying to help you remember who's who. So, for example, let us take Thomas Howard, born in 1443 and the son of Jacob of Norfolk be not too bold, for dick and thy master is bought and sold, the Duke of Norfolk who fought for Richard III. Actually, the Howards are stripped of their title of Norfolk for a while though it was restored to them in 1513 but essentially when sons are born into noble families they were often given one of the other titles the family owned if they owned multiple. So in 1513 Thomas Howard is known as the Duke of Norfolk. His son, also Thomas Howard, is called the Earl of Surrey while his dad is alive because that's another title that the Howards own. When dad dies in 1524... Thomas Younger changes from being Earl of Surrey to being Duke of Norfolk, i.e. he uses what they consider to be the senior title when he's the head of the family. That's a lot of waffle. That really hasn't helped. But if the same question was in your mind, there you are. And to explain the hideous, confusing thing, that you not only have to remember a lot of names, you also have to remember that, very often, that name changes over time. The same bloke will have more than one name as he goes through his life, What can I say? Sorry seems to be the hardest word. But sorry, on behalf of the English nation. Anyway, back to the Great Council. Despite the fact that there were only 60 noble families, the Great Council was not a good institution for getting anything done. In Henry VII's reign, there were about 120 individuals who at one stage had been part of the Great Council. So, Henry VII had formed his own private or privy council of the men who really did get things done, his loyal, dependent, largely non noble bureaucrats like Thomas Lovell, Richard Fox, Empson, Dudley, those kind of guys. They were lawyers, gentry, churchmen, that sort of thing. But this privy council was little p, little c. It met behind closed doors didn't have a secretariat or a minute book or that sort of thing. It was, again, not an official organ of state. It was just the king and his crew. It is an institution that Thomas Cromwell will change forever, but not yet. Thomas Cromwell, at this point, is a soldier of fortune on the continent, a young man of 24 being, in his own words, quote, something of a ruffian. The First Great Council is significant for what came out of it, but it's also significant for the first appearance of faction, which, as we discussed last time will be such a feature of significant parts of Henry's reign. Henry's father left behind him some of the most trusted and experienced councillors that he had. Notable in particular among them were the Bishop of Winchester, Richard Fox, Thomas Lovell, and the Archbishop of Canterbury, William Warham, remained as Chancellor. These men were mm, not in the first flush of youth, shall we say, sixty two, sixty one, fifty nine, respectively. Obviously, There's nothing wrong with that, nothing wrong at all. They were able to bring their wisdom to bear rather than the callow hormones of youth. I would myself appreciate the odd hormone of youth, but never mind, I'll have to wait for wisdom to arrive instead. These men also brought with them the policy and attitude of their old master, Henry VII. That attitude was to watch the pennies and the pounds would look after themselves. But since you're watching the pennies, you might as well keep your eyes stuck to the pounds as well. After all, their master had been on first-name terms, actually, with a significant number of those pennies, even sent some of them Christmas cards. They also brought with them a very cautious approach to foreign adventures. Foreign adventures are expensive. Henry had tried that once. It had cost more than a fur-lined sheepskin jacket, so never again. People died in wars, which was fine as long as they were the right kind of people. That's what people were there for, after all. But they were eye-watering, it clenchingly toe curlingly expensive all of these three men had big do not go to water day stickers above their desks it is these men though that gleefully or probably solemnly actually stuck the knife between the ribs of Empsom and dudley but now these men had competition competition that they have been able to thumb their noses at under the previous regime if anyone does seriously thumb their noses If not, let's bring it back. I urge you, gentle listeners, to thumb your nose at someone today. Followed, of course, by suitable apologies and explanations. Let us declare National Nose Thumbing Day. Thumb a nose for charity. Have you thumbed your nose today? OK, that's enough. The competition was the nobility. Yep, remember them. Even the ones that had been missing for the Garter meeting of the 23rd of April were now back in town and they could smell opportunity like truffle pigs. They came to the royal trough, snuffling and squealing slightly with excitement. There were the old guard, like John de Vere, Earl of Oxford, Thomas Howard, the Earl of Surrey, and the outrageous Duke of Buckingham, here of the 1,500 quid robe. But there were now the new Henry's friends and companions that had gathered around him in his father's household. These men were actually going to be called his minions. Edward Howard, Thomas Nivet, Henry and Edward Guildford, William Compton his great and lifelong favourite Charles Brandon these men were in their 20s and 30s these lords wanted an end to peace quiet and a nice cup of tea these people wanted war violence glory and riches with utensils but in the short term it was time to clear the decks for action and remove the negative associations of the old king's regime And so the world was officially informed of Dudley and Empson's need to spend more time with their families of tower-bred cockroaches. And if you needed any evidence that the times they were a-changing, several bonds were immediately cancelled. You remember those hideous bonds held over the heads of the nobility to keep them in line. They were immediately cancelled on the grounds that they were, quote, "...made by undue means of certain of the learned counsel of our late father." Contrary to law, reason, and good conscience, to the manifest charge and peril of our soul, of our late father. The fact that the late father concerned had squealed with delight, like a truffle pig again, with each one of those was neither here nor there, of course. Thus was the direction of travel set. Within months, two-thirds of all bonds and recognises that Henry's dad had lovingly hung above the heads of the untrustworthy nobility had been removed. The sun was indeed shining, and it was indeed a new day. At the same time, a generous pronouncement was made. Complaints about treatment at the hands of the old regime were encouraged. Now, only up to mistakes and encouraging criticism is pretty rare in this day and age. Back then, it was, well, it was jaw-dropping. Now, of course, Henry soon got bored with the stream of complaints, did precious little about them, and got so cross he had Dudley and Epson executed. But nonetheless, it is... I am told, the thought that counts. Now, you might expect that Henry would take a look around at this situation and gently ease out the old guard and get some young guys in a bit more like him. Maybe give the old lot a slap on the back, a casual if insulting use of the term old-timer, a gold watch and a bus pass, lock the door after you please. Actually, there were some signs that some of these guys were looking for a way out themselves. Richard Fox, for example was now going blind. He was very keen to return to his diocese and actually do some churching. This is a problem actually generally with the English bishops. They'll get a roasting come the Reformation, brother. they'll be first up against the wall and possibly with some justice. But part of the reason why they were absentees from their diocese was that the Crown kept insisting they work in central government. Richard Fox had his protégé, the royal chaplain, to advance in the King's service instead, and by November 1509, he would have won him the position of the King's Almoner, which has got nothing to do with almonds, obviously, but the distributor of the King's charity. The royal chaplain in question is, of course, Thomas Wolsey. William Warham, the Archbishop of Canterbury, was even more keen to get away from politics, and unlike Fox and Lovell, he managed pretty successfully to keep out of them at the Hurley-Burley, which was no mean achievement for a Chancellor. But, despite the temptation to ease out the old guard, actually, Henry does no such thing. Fox, in particular, it would be that would soon be recognised by the foreign ambassadors at court as the Alter Rex, the alternative king. You might ask why. Go on, ask me why. Okay. well, the answer was that Henry had far better things to do than run the country. Henry was like a pig in, well, clover. He had been left a legacy by his father, a peaceful country, experienced councillors, a nobility that could not be more pleased to see him, and a pretty useful nest egg. England's income, because of its size and that live-of-your-own rule, was still pretty rubbish, around £110,000 in a normal year, but Henry had left a pile of treasure. I gave an estimate of about 300000 worth of plate and jewellery. Some historians go much farther than that. I've seen estimates as high as £1.2 which is very substantial when your normal annual income is a tenth of that. Also, the Crown had never been so well endowed with land. Or not for a long time, anyway. Henry VII, as I need not tell you again probably, had hung on to all those Yorkist lands. Seriously, Henry VIII was in a good place. Henry's carefully considered policy was to get together with the boys have a party, hunting, and shooting, and fishing, well actually more like hunting, feasting and jousting, that was the business of kings. There was another policy, as not yet fully formed, but clearly at the top of his mind, let's stick it to the French. So this partially at least explains why, possibly surprisingly, Henry didn't remove his father's counsellor straight away, he simply had better things to do with his time. He had nothing of his father's slightly obsessive desire to oversee and control everything in detail. Though, woe betide you if you got it wrong.
1: Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.
0: There are two instructive stories I'd like to give you from this very early period. One is that it appears that the King's Council met with or without the King, and very often given the King's preference for fun and games, quite often without him. The king was still relatively young, of course, though older than Henry VI had been when he had taken personal control of his kingdom. The king's Privy Council, for the most part, would have been composed of somewhere between eight and twelve councillors meeting in the Star Chamber. The numbers of the Magnum Concilium would be a comparatively rare event. At one of these meetings, presided over by Buckingham and Oxford, the discussion was about whether or not they should do something about the king's role in government, should they set a direction for the lad, Should he be, quote, brought up in worldly knowledge, or else in pleasure and liberty, leaving the care to the council? Now, this seems like a silly question, doesn't it? I mean, he's king, father of his people and all that. He's got work to do, for crying out loud. But no, the answer was, quote, to bring him up in all pleasure. Seriously? Why is that? For otherwise he should grow too hard among his subjects as the king his father did. Oh, come on, that seems a little wimpoid, doesn't it? Wimpoid or not, if we are feeling censorious about Henry skipping and hopping out of the council and leaving the running of the country to others while he had fun, well, there is a bit of justification. He was being encouraged to do just that very thing by people who really should have known better. The other instructive story was that at some point, someone, somewhere, somehow, from the council, sent a letter to the French king, Louis Twelfth. They sent him a nice little note, actually, reassuring him that England would indeed continue to be friendly to Mr France. Well, this appears to have either been done without Henry's knowledge, or forced through over Henry's better judgment, because one morning, at breakfast, over the papers, Henry received a very nice letter back from Louis, delighted at the happy note he'd received from him. Well, Henry was seriously miffed, livid, hopping mad, a bunny, most unhappy He'd already set out his intention to renew the traditional war with France to regain his birthright. He'd already taken a special care to be seriously rude to the French envoy in court. When Henry sat in council, he therefore laid about him. Who wrote this letter, I ask peace, of the King of France? Who dare not look at me, let alone make war? Now, already your knowledge of Henry should have told you a couple of things about his character. Number one, he's quite impulsive. The marriage to Catherine, for example, done over the objections of the Archbishop of Canterbury and actually over Henry's own doubts about the theological position. You might remember the Leviticus thing about not covering your brother's widow's nakedness because it is, in fact, when all is said and done, your brother's nakedness and no one wants a naked brother. So, impulsive. Second thing, all this youthful charm and enthusiasm, boisterousness and all that can very quickly turn to rage, just like flicking a switch. Now, 1775 words ago, I said that Henry's first magnum concilium saw the start of the first sign of faction in Henry's government. And then I just kept talking, leaving you all hanging in the wind. Sorry about that. But here then was an example of the faction that for the moment had won out. Let us call them the Peace Party or the Old Regime Party, or maybe the Codgers. These are the careful, cautious, and ever-so-slightly tight-fisted fisted counsellors of the old king, once more, Fox, Warham, Lovell. Avoid war, make peace with France, buy value brands. They'd had it all their own way since 1485. And now, flooding into positions of influence, had come the young minions, the young seons of the nobility. Henry Stafford, Thomas Nivett, Edward Neville, Thomas and William Parr, Thomas Boleyn, Edward and Henry Guildford, Charles Branson, Edward Howard. And among these some not so high-born but nonetheless close to the king such as William Compton. Now this is just a list of names to you though some of them we've introduced before and if you don't recognize the name of Neville well shame on you. But if you hop along to the website thehistoryofengland.co.uk you can see a post with some brief biographies and some pictures where we have them so you can remember some of these names. In October 1509, Henry set up his company of spears, a bodyguard of 50 men dressed in cloth of gold. Charles Brandon was one of them. Henry Bourchier, the Earl of Essex, was made the captain. All of them had to swear an oath of loyalty. Nice. Bunch of mates. But just to make sure you have a bunch of mates that don't take the mick out of you, they have to prat around in costume and swear an oath of loyalty to you. Must remember that approach the serious point about faction at this point then is not only that the lines were drawn between a peace and a war party but also that there was essentially at the moment no head so as these parties struggled to resolve their differences and agree a policy the king's council was effectively paralyzed because it needed an arbiter a king essentially and the king was off having a party I think it might have been Alistair Campbell, an English politician, for those of you outside the UK, who coined the phrase, punching the bruise. And I had been punching the bruise that our young lad, King Henry, was having a good time. You may feel that the bruise is now painful enough and well enough formed. But I'm sorry to say, a little more punching is needed. Obviously, the coronation was a great opportunity for a knees up and knees were duly thus employed but there was constant larking from here on in. In the summer, Henry would take his court on a progress, a tour, as it were, which meant that the people who did the work mainly stayed at home in Westminster. Sadly, we are beyond the wholly mobile and peripatetic government of the medieval kings. During that first summer, Catherine became pregnant and everyone was told in November 1509, everyone was really happy, really, everything was going Henry's way. The Christmas celebrations were, of course, a chance to push the boat out. but at the end of the celebrations on the 12th of January 1510, Henry famously and finally put aside his father's caution and decided to take part in a joust. Now, clearly he was a little nervous, either because he'd turn out to be a little bit rubbish and no king wants to be reduced to tears by the naughty nobles, or maybe because he was worried about how people would take it, though that doesn't sound like Henry, to be honest. And so on this occasion, he entered the tournament incognito, which is not an uncommon thing to do, it has to be said. He entered along with his close friend, William Compton. Compton, you might remember, is not quite the social level of Henry's other minions. He'll be Henry's confidential fixer, his right-hand man. He'd already been appointed as groom of the stool, which meant, physically at least, there was no one apart from Catherine who got closer to the king. Compton was never terribly interested in politics, but if a secret liaison was required, one of the leaders of the court, well, a nod and a wink, Compton was your man. So, both of them dressed up without heraldic signs and entered the tournament. I do not know if anyone was fooled. Just can't tell you. I suspect it was pretty obvious, and all and sundry we were aware. After all, the young king liked a tournament, so where was he? Hmm. What they may not have known is which of the unmarked knights was which, which was Compton, which was Henry. The two knights started taking part, and everyone appeared to be duly impressed with their performance. And then Edward Neville was fighting one of them and proceeded to give him such a beating that he was really badly wounded, the kind of wound you don't walk away from. There was a gasp, a shiver of the crowd, a frisson, hands to mouths, a cry of God save the king! As Compton struggled for breath, the pain and wave of terror that he'd been killed by this aristocratic twerp, he thought of his mother and why he should have fixed that gate he'd been meaning to do for the last five years, and you know, now he'd never had the chance. Henry the King raised his visor to let everyone know that the guy that had been hit really hard wasn't him. And he was fine. Everyone clapped and cheered and was mightily relieved. Ha! Except Compton, of course, who was hoping that maybe at some stage somebody would come and notice the fact that he was dying over here. Compton would be fine, actually. You will be relieved to hear. It occurs to me whether Neville had decided that a parvenu like Compton needed a lesson from a real aristo Neville, incidentally, apparently looked so like Henry that a rumour went round the court that he was Henry VII's illegitimate son. So, now the tournament is part of the King's schedule and he will go mad for it. Do not worry, everyone. You will hear more. Equally, you will not get a blow-by-blow account of each tournament. That would be hideously dull. But before we move on... The question you are all asking yourself, of course, is, was he really any good? Or did everyone else just hold back because he was the king? We have many of the checklists, apparently, of the tournaments, and so you can see his form. The general consensus among historians appears to be, what with everything else, that, yep, Henry was pretty good. There is corroborating evidence that he was a sportsman and an athlete. He's known to have excelled at archery, for example, when on campaign in France. Oops, plot spoiler, sorry. Nonetheless, it is impossible to think that you didn't quite complete your follow-through when fighting the king, isn't it? OK, so tournaments are now in, but iceberg-wise, when it comes to larking, that is just the tip. And the iceberg goes a long, long way down. There's a lot of larking going on. In January 1510, the Queen, Catherine, was sitting in the Queen's chamber, as queens are wont to do, with her ladies-in-waiting doing what they do, and very probably including one Elizabeth Boleyn, by the way the wife of Thomas Boleyn, and mother of a nine-year-old girl called Anne Boleyn. Anyway, in burst ten blokes in Robin Hood costumes, all disguised and all that, insisting on a dance with the ladies and all that. Apparently the ladies were, quote, abashed as well for the strange sight as for their sudden coming. Well, maybe. On Trove Tuesday following, he suddenly appeared in the middle of a banquet for foreign ambassadors, all dressed up as a Turk with six others as Prussians and torchbearers as Moors. There is loads of this stuff. You have to wonder what Catherine thought of it all. Did she think it was all quite sweet, really? I imagine that when the clever disguisings took place, she noticed that one of the Turks was a good deal bigger than everyone else and couldn't stop giggling. So you imagine she wasn't really fooled. Or maybe she wished he'd stop messing about quite so much and concentrate a bit more. The partying was constant. On one progress, his regime of fun was described thus. Shooting, singing, dancing, wrestling, casting of the bar, playing at the recorders, flute and virginals, and in the setting of songs, making of ballads, and did set two godly masses, every one of them in five parts, which were sung, oftentimes in his chapel. And then he came to Woking. There were kept both jousts and tourneys The rest of his time was spent in hunting, hawking and shooting. Another story has Henry organising mock battles on foot with his companions twice a week, a constant round of preparation for war. All of this was accompanied by gaming and drinking and a cascade of daft adolescent messing about. So one game that Henry and his companions indulged in was the cutting of purses. This involved sneaking up and nicking purses from people in the streets, literally cutting them from their belts. It began to get out of hand. I mean, a bunch of young nobles nicking your purse posed an impossible social problem for a victim. Did you laugh and go along with it? (laughs) Or give the idiot a clip round the ear hole? Giving a noble in England a clip round the ear hole in the 16th century could be a seriously life-shortening experience. I'm going to stop now since I suspect all this description of partying could get tiresome but let's summarise a bit and try to make a few serious po-faced points as though I were a proper historian rather than a purveyor of tittle tattle as it is increasingly beginning to appear. First of all, for all the parting, do not imagine that Henry was in any way irreverent. Amongst all this messing about, Henry would regularly observe Mass three times a day. He a good son of the Church, an obedient servant of God. Secondly, Can I make the point any more clearly? Henry has better things to do than sit around reading state papers. There is a vacuum of policy at the top, which the King's Council tries to fill. But split by faction into a peace and war party, it's difficult to get things done. Next, there is much of the animal in Henry, in a reasonably nice way. He's impulsive, physical, obsessed by war. Talented, it has to be said, and multi-skilled. But can I avoid saying he's something of a childish prat at this point? Not sure that counts as poe-faced, but really, this is the bloke who will be making decisions for two million subjects of the England crown. The nobility is back, in spades, with brass knobs on, dressed in cloth of gold. I might take you to Henry's first parliament on January 1510. Here, Henry completed the reversal of his father's policy of nobility, squishing, by rehabilitating the old Yorkists. The greys and Courtenays, viewed with suspicion and dread by Henry Seventh due to their closeness to the Yorkists, were restored. Margaret Pole, daughter of the Duke of Clarence, was made Countess of Salisbury, and her son was made Lord Montague. So what you have is an inner elite circle of noble families, an irresponsible bunch of ever so slightly childish companions of the king, having a high old time, totally in tune with his dreams of war and glory, inhabiting the King's council against the better judgment of the old, dry counsellors of Henry the Seventh, and finally. A new tradition of wild and irresponsible expenditure is being firmly established. The old king's household had been firmly instructed by the king himself not to waste the old spent end of candles, since they might come in handy or be squished together in the way that my father used to keep the small used cakes of soap and squish them together to make sure none was lost. Within months of the new king's arrival, the money was beginning to flow. 355 quid to a jeweller of Paris. 566 for pearls and other jewels, £800 for New Year presents. I could go on. Remember, £50 a year and you qualified to be a knight. So just those New Year presents were 1,600 knights potential annual income. Sweet. Of course, the money wouldn't really start flowing until the king went to war, but the instinct is established. Dad left me a major fortune. Money, no object. Spend, spend, spend. I'll let someone else worry about where it's all coming from. OK, next time I promise to be a little bit more serious. We'll talk about some events that were pretty serious for Catherine and have a hack at the main preoccupation of the king's early years, war. However, before that, next week we'll have a guest episode from David Maclean about the Shakespeare controversies, an episode honourable members heard a few weeks back. Was Shakespeare really Shakespeare, or rather, did he really write those plays? Welcome back, David. So it'll be two weeks before we come back to Henry and his love of war. Until then, gentle listeners, thank you very much for your kind attention. Good luck and have a great fortnight.